0: Coming up on The Green, from Delaware Public Media, the organization that oversees scholastic sports in the first state is poised to undergo much needed changes.
1: We're at a crossroads, we're at a critical point, and things need to change to make this opportunity better for everyone.
0: We sit down with DIAA Executive Director David Baylor. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. We also examine the state of home sales in Delaware. Arts Playlist tells us more about a concert focused on the nation's first black woman composer and her often overlooked music. And Enlighten Me previews the commercials you'll see during Sunday's Super Bowl. It's all next on the green, where Delaware gets tuned into a first date of mine. But first the news from NPR. Welcome to this week's edition of The Green on Delaware Public Media. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. Last fall, a task force began work on examining the Delaware Interscholastic Athletic Association, or DIAA, the piece of Delaware's Department of Education that oversees high school and middle school sports in the first state. The task force was born out of complaints about DIAA and its handling of issues such as student transfers and coaches' contact with student-athletes out of season. But these individual issues have led to a larger question: Is DIAA, as it's currently constructed, up to the challenge of governing the modern and evolving scholastic sports landscape? To help us examine that question and the various issues DIAA faces, we sat down this week with the organization's executive director, David Baylor. Dave, I wanted to ask you. I mean, it feels like DIAA recently has been kind of you know facing almost an avalanche of of issues, things ranging from you know managing the pandemic a couple of years ago changing division structures transfer and eligibility rules out of season coaching and so on uh, i'm curious when you took over last summer was there a little of a where do i begin feeling with diving into this job
1: uh there's still a where do i begin uh feeling right now you know the DIAA has been existence since i think it's 2002 mm-hmm. and um you know, sports have grown in the state. Uh, schools have been added. The whole uh, educational structure has changed, but the DIAA has not. And um, one of the things that I've I've come to learn since I've been here is that um, the resources that we have to do the job is 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 severely lacking. And uh, so, some of the issues that you have identified are compounded because of that lack of having and infrastructure that can support uh, what high school sports, interscholastic sports means to uh, a state. So, um, yeah, the challenges are significant. Uh, I'm trying to work through it.
0: I was going to say, as you look at those structural issues, I guess one of the big things on your plate is trying to address that through the work of the uh, Delaware Interscholastic Athletic Association Task Force. Um, And it feels like just through these first meetings of that task force that um, there is a sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, overall, that there's a, the path forward to reimagining DIAA does in fact lie at its base in, in reimagining the structure and how it operates. Um, you, you mentioned kind of like the staffing issues. Are, are there some other key operational and structural issues that you feel like absolutely have to be identified for DIAA to be effective? in whatever form it is in?
1: Yes, so uh, currently because we fall under the Department of Education in the state, we have to follow the administrative uh, regulatory process, which uh, uh, has, as I've learned, is probably about a three to four month process to get a regulation either adopted or changed or rescinded. That can hamper the effectiveness of your operation. And we're finding that when we're dealing with everything from waivers, transfers, uh, competitiveness, like for example, as you outlined in the beginning of, uh, of the opening of this segment, you know, we've gone through realignment for football. There are some other sports that would like that, but to be able to to take on those challenges that we have to streamline the regulatory process. We also have to streamline the finance process. The finance process is cumbersome in that, you know, to be able to get workers to work state championships and everything, you wanna be able to pay them in a timely fashion. Uh, Sometimes that has been a challenge. So those are some of the obstacles other than human resources that we need to to change, to make us more uh, nimble uh, and flexible, to be an effective organization.
0: And Dave, one of the suggestions that has come up is taking DIAA out of the Department of Education and state government and making it an independent nonprofit like we see in some other states like PIAA in Pennsylvania. Do you feel like that move alone could solve many of these issues we're talking about um, and other issues that have come up in terms, you know, with you know, the Public Integrity Commission and, and other governmental entities that, that also, because of what you said earlier, are involved in this process?
1: To answer your question, we are an overregulated organization. So, yes, from a micro look at something, yes, removing us from DOE would, would solve a lot of those problems. From a macro uh, look, you, you have to look at your funding. So, to be able to do that effectively and efficiently, and if the goal is to make us self sustaining, we're going to have to need some kind of capital from the uh, state legislature to get us underway. And then I would imagine if we got the proper capital and I was able to uh, put together the proper staffing. There's two ways we can approach this. One is becoming like a majority of the states that have a 501c3, and you become your self-sustaining entity, uh, which would help us in the regulatory process, the finance process, and, and be able to, I think, be more Uh, user-friendly to our member schools, right? In order for that to happen, we're going to have to have some capital from the, a capital investment from the state legislature to get us underway. And that capital investment would allow us to become self-sufficient. And I think within uh, two to three years at the most, we can be a self-sufficient entity like other states. Or if we stayed under Department of Education, it would have to be a hybrid which would free us from a lot of those regulatory restrictions.
0: And I guess if you wind up being an independent nonprofit, a standalone operation, I guess in some ways, it also could affect the structural issue as well, right? I mean, theoretically, you could then maybe address staffing and start having the staff that you would want to have. Again, assuming there's the funding to make that happen, but that would be, I guess, part of the process. You would be able to kind of determine what is the staffing we need and how to implement it the way that would be most effective.
1: Exactly right. So the next task force meeting is uh, February 20th, and I'm supposed to put forth a plan on how I see uh, that infrastructure being created to make us uh, a more fluid and effective organization. What are
0: some of the things you you do feel are necessary staffing-wise for this to be an optimal governing body?
1: So, structural-wise, one of the things I'm looking at is uh, adding a finance marketing person to the team, a compliance uh, director to the team, a liaison for each county, because uh, that direct person would have direct contact with the member schools, uh, and we'd be able to triage and provide a direct service in a more immediate fashion than we currently are able to.
0: So, Dave, while this all gets sorted out, I mean, there are the decisions that you need to make on pressing issues in real time. You know, for example, you know, what can you do in DIAA's current form to make transfer and eligibility questions work more smoothly for students and their families, um, as one example?
1: Well, well Tom, that, that's a challenge because just think of it this way in uh, any given time, or any given day, I should say, I could get between, say, a half a dozen to a dozen transfer waiver requests. Those are usually voluminous in the paperwork. You have to go through that. Uh, and then, you you know, you have to make a determination of whether you're going to issue an interim waiver or not. And then that still has to be heard before the board. That's a, that's a time-consuming process. But for example, right now, we're in the process of trying to get in a championship mode for, we just finished track and field last Saturday, we have wrestling coming up, swimming and diving, and basketball. Um, so I mean, just imagine two people trying to uh, manage their way through all of those and still try to have that uh, administrative responsibility of, of dealing with transfers and tr- waiver requests and, and and working with the board on complex issues like transgender and all. So, uh, that's, the, that's the challenges that we're faced with on a daily basis with the current structure.
0: You, you mentioned transgender uh, athletes' participation, as, as, and, and that's one of uh, you know, a couple of emerging issues you have to deal with. Uh, since you brought it up, I'm curious, is that an issue Delaware really needs to address sooner rather than later to kind of get ahead of? There hasn't been any issues in Delaware yet, but we've obviously seen them elsewhere. Is that something Delaware really needs to get ahead of instead of waiting to be kind of reactionary to?
1: Well, I mean, we've 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 had an individual uh, by the name of Kathy Carpenter who has addressed the board in the December meeting and questioned our current regula- current regulations. So the board at that time decided to ask the sportsmanship committee, the uh, rules and regulations committee, and the sports medicine advisory committee to look at the issue and. Each, uh, each committee is to come back to the board with recommendations. Uh, so uh, that process is underway, and I'm sure that they're, we're getting information that the U.S. Department of Education will be coming out with some uh, guidelines uh, in March-April time period. So that's how we're trying to address it.
0: Uh, another issue that, that is kind of emerging is, is the issue of name, image, and likeness, which has obviously started filtering down from the collegiate level, now even to the high school level. Uh, wh- where does uh, DIAA stand on dealing with NIL issues at the high school level?
1: So uh, the, in the January board meeting, the board had a very, I'd say, open discussion about NIL. And uh, what was decided uh, at that board meeting was for to look at our eligibility rule, our amateurism rule, I should say regulation, And uh, the direction was given to uh, the Deputy Attorney General and to the IAA to take some language uh, primarily from the Oklahoma uh, Interscholastic Athletic Association's NIL regulation and incorporate it with our amateurism regulation. And that is being brought forth back to the board on the February meeting to begin the process of allowing NIL in Delaware.
0: So, Dave, no matter how all this plays out, how important is it that the state get it right this time in terms of structuring DIAA? How important is it to get it right for the overall health of scholastic sports in Delaware?
1: It's important to get it right because interscholastic sports or athletics means a lot to a lot of people. If you just think about it from this landscape, a lot of parents, as they were growing up, participated in their interscholastic sports in one fashion or another. Either they attended to support their school or they were student athletes. And you know, that kind of just continues to evolve and roll over generation to generation. Keeping kids involved and engaged in school, school activities, interscholastic athletics pays an important part of that. You know, from my background as, as a former law enforcement officer, you would rather see kids involved in interscholastic athletics and supporting school events than hanging out on the streets uh, from a socialization development standpoint and being able to function later in life learning the rules of being a part of a team and being a part of something that all plays hand in hand so interscholastic athletics is important it's a developmental function it's a teaching function and we we have to do more in Delaware than what we're doing to make the experience better for everyone that is the students, the coaches, the schools, the parents, and the community. And um, there's a lot of opportunity out here to help teach our our young men and women on how to be able to function in life later by being a part of interscholastic athletics. So we're at a crossroads, we're at a critical point, and things need to change to make this opportunity better for everyone. –
0: Optimistic, this process is on the right track
1: I'm I'm very optimistic. I'm encouraged that there are some legislators that really are committed to making change. Is it going to be easy? No, but this is a pure example of life. Life isn't easy, so we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to evolve. And I think I think the timing is right. I think everyone realizes it, and I think I'm encouraged that that. That I, I truly believe we're heading in the right direction, and uh, I'm glad to be a part of this. I'm a fighter, not a quitter, so uh, we're going to make it right, whichever way we have to go with this, to do that. And I think the task force is uh, is important part to this.
0: Thanks to DIAA Executive Director David Baylor for his time this week. And stay with us. We take a look at the current state of the Delaware residential housing market. That's next on The Green, here on Delaware Public Media. You're listening to The Green on Delaware Public Media, and I'm Tom Byrne. Home sales in Delaware, buffeted by a variety of issues like low inventory and high interest rates, remain sluggish. So if you're looking to buy or sell a home in the first date as the spring and summer approach, what can you expect? Is it a buyer's or seller's market? This week, contributor Eileen Dallabrida examines home sales in the first date and what's driving them in her latest piece at DelawarePublic.org. And she joined me to delve into the details. So before we start digging into some of the details... Overall, how does the market look as we approach the spring compared to to recent years? Generally speaking, are things better or worse at this juncture?
2: Well, Tom, I wish I had better news for you, but they are worse. Same old, same old. Too many buyers, not enough homes. And now we have higher mortgage interest rates, which has added another huge layer in making uh, buying a home less accessible.
0: So let's start digging into some of those issues. And there are some of the issues we talked about a year ago when we were looking at home sales in Delaware. And one is is inventory. Uh, where does inventory stand right now? And is there any indication that that's going to change as we head into the spring and summer?
2: That's the big question. Inventory is still really low. But I do hear anecdotally from real estate agents that they expect the supply to perk up a bit in spring. And they are, they're getting lots of calls from folks who are interested in listing. And whether those folks actually pull the trigger remains to be seen.
0: So there's a lot of kind of toe-dipping going on right now, and we have to wait yeah. and see. Is safe
2: to come out yet? <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you also mentioned this uh, earlier, interest rates also a big factor. What's happening right now with interest rates, and what's kind of the impact on, on the market as we see it right now?
2: Well, after hitting a jaw-dropping 8% last summer, at least jaw-dropping by recent standards, they've ticked down to about six and a half, seven percent
0: 7%. And so what does that mean when you start talking about uh, prices in the first states uh, in terms of uh, both the inventory and the interest rates? When those two things kind of collide, what does that mean for the prices we're seeing right now?
2: Well, if interest rates are double what they were the last time you bought a house, it means that monthly mortgage payment on the new house would pretty much double, too, even if you're borrowing the same amount of money. If there were more inventory, home prices would likely go down to make up for that. But with so few homes available, prices are still inching up.
0: So the way prices are right now... Are people getting a little greedy and maybe asking a little bit too much? Are they thinking they they can, you know, if they are going to put their house up for sale, they can milk a little bit more out of it, maybe to help them on the backside when they have to go buy their next house? Um, and what happens with prices, uh, houses that are a little bit overpriced?
2: There are a lot of, of people who have gotten a little greedy, and, um, and typically uh, their agent tries to uh, talk them into... Uh, pricing the house appropriately, but they won't always go for it, and uh, they say that overpricing is harmful in the end because the house doesn't sell quickly, and people see it as a stale listing, and then they start offering less money, especially at the beach where where prices have really gone up. There's there has been um, a little wavelet of price reductions on the very high end homes. I was thinking in um. Uh, North Shore is a very Tony community in Rehoboth. Recently, a seven-bedroom, six-bath home, lots of decks, uh, water views—not the ocean, pond views—sold for four million, which was one million less than the listing price. And we're seeing other other uh, properties that are getting dinged, hundred and fifty thousand below listing 50,000 less than listing so the market is it will tell people when they have priced the home too high
0: and i guess at a certain point that, that that's what we always look for in, in the market right is that you know as those prices go up people see that opportunity and at, at a certain point there is a bit of a correction that, that there is going to be you know based on in, inventory interest rates and things like that that eventually it's going to be like okay the you know the bubble's gotten big enough uh, it, it's going to start to deflate a little bit
2: you're right so
0: we've also talked about um, one specific part of the market in the past and, and it's not it's not those 4 million dollar homes <laughs> at the beaches it's it's on the other end of the spectrum and that's with first time home buyers and and that market um, it's been tough for first time buyers in recent years. Is that still the case? Is it really still hard for that person looking to get that first home?
2: It is. I mean, the the state is offering some some great programs for first time buyers looking for homes at less than two hundred and eighty five thousand dollars. I, I is that's the threshold. But they can't you can't find a house priced that well, they say, we, we're saying low, but even <laughs> right. though that, that is a, a heck of a lot of money. And it's very uh, difficult because there are so few homes in good condition that are priced below, I'm hearing this number, 250000 And it's very hard for first-timers to save any money because rents are so high, 1500 to $1,600 a month for an apartment, $25. Hundred dollars a month for a small house, so they're they're real truly stuck between a rock and a hard place.
0: And that used to be the path, right? Is it like okay, you're going to rent for a while, uh, you're going to try to just you know be smart budget wise, sock some money away, and then you know you would have the nest egg you need to to get into that house at a reasonable price, like something you know two hundred thousand, you know something in that you know in that area. But right now like none of the factors that normally worked for you in the past, the relatively low house price or the ability to save money is working. Um, does that, is there a different path to take at this point to, to get closer to buying a first home?
2: Well, I interviewed a first-time buyer. He's 23 years old, and he made it his mission. to. Uh, he, he went out, he got a better-paying job, he moved in with his parents and he just socked money away and waited and looked at everything that was anywhere near his, his price range. He got a, he got a really good agent who had uh, bought and sold homes for his parents and he prevailed and it's been two years of looking for him. So it's, it's, it's not easy, but I think if you really are intent, patient, and persevere, that you can do it.
0: You really gotta take the, the long view and play the long game to, to make it yeah. work. Um, is there any advice you have or the experts you talk to have for buying or selling a home right now that might help them better navigate the market at this point?
2: Lock up your financing. It truly, it's a numbers game, and in the hierarchy of financing, cash is king, followed by conventional financing, and people are getting cash from their investments in stocks. Sometimes the bank of mom and dad, you know, they get money from generous relatives, but folks with VA and FHA loans are at a disadvantage because of government standards, and if you really want to be a buyer of choice, you need to be willing to do things like waive home inspections, which is a risky proposition.
0: Mm-hmm. How about on the seller side? Is there anything that, that they need to be thinking about to kind of score a win, so to speak, in this market?
2: Well, I think it's to price the, the property right that, and also make sure that it's a big advantage to have a house that is in tip-top condition. So do that painting and, uh, you know, plant those petunias.
0: <laughs> Make it as move-in ready as possible.
2: Yep. People want to just bring their toothbrush.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so how about the long-range picture? How does that look right now? Is, is there any hope that perhaps interest rates are going to go down? Um, even if you how to buy now and, and would be able to say like, well, maybe in a couple of years I could refinance if interest rates come down. Is the market likely to shift in any way like that that's going to make things better in the relatively short term?
2: Well, the, the, the experts that I spoke with said that it could take as long as five years for a correction. But there's, when I ask what's the magic number, it, it seems to be in, uh, mortgage interest of 5%. So we're like high sixes now, so I think that that might happen um, in in a shorter term. But if if we get to that 5%, I think that that will go a long way to getting sellers off the sidelines, because paying a 5% mortgage instead of a 3% mortgage is a lot easier to swallow than paying an 8% mortgage.
0: Thanks to contributor Eileen Dalabrida for her time this week. Her piece on home sales in Delaware is available at delawarepublic.org. Next up on The Green, arts playlist, And more on a concert this month shining the spotlight on the nation's first black woman composer and her often overlooked music. This is The Green on Delaware Public Media. Welcome back to The Green on Delaware Public Media. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. For decades, it was nearly impossible to hear music written by Florence Price. Born in Arkansas in 1887, Price overcame the odds to eventually become the first black woman recognized as a symphonic composer and the first to have her compositions played by a major orchestra. Despite her accomplishments, most classical music gatekeepers have put her work aside. For this month, the all-female orchestra, Her Time 2020, honors Price with its Florence Price Snapshots of My Soul Concert at the Newark United Methodist Church on Sunday, February 18th at 3 p.m. In this edition of Arts Playlist, Delaware Public Media's Carl Langle chats with Her Time 2020 director and conductor Rosaria Machera about the concert and Florence Price's legacy.
3: You created this group to celebrate and commemorate the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And that takes us to the history. Tell us a little bit more about her time 2020. The idea behind starting this specific all-female orchestra.
4: In 1872, a women's orchestra from Vienna toured the United States. And that gave women the idea to start their own orchestras because they were prohibited from performing with men and and professionally. So all the professionals were men. These orchestras developed all over the country, uh, Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, and they thrived from the 1880s to the 1930s. And then with the second world war depleting the ranks of professional orchestras of men who were serving, that gave women opportunity To join professional orchestras. And then these orchestras pretty much faded. There are a handful left in the country. So, in a homage to this practice of years ago, I thought, would it be cool to start my own orchestra? Uh, And that's what, and I used the anniversary of the 19th Amendment as a launch pad.
3: You currently serve as president of AFM Local 21 Musicians Union. You've been a contracted violinist with the Delaware Symphony Orchestra since 1988, directed the orchestras of Shumadil Middle School and New York High School for 30 plus years. As a violinist, quite a bit of training for this. Does this help you becoming a better conductor?
4: Well, that's a really good question. I think so. Um, so I, I, I came from the root of, of a conservatory musician, and then when I graduated, I freelanced for a while and this opportunity came up to teach, which I took and thrived. I thought I was able to channel my creative side and then to share it with students and the and the community. Then that sparked the degree in conducting, which came from the University of Delaware. I feel like it my path was not usual, but it it made me well rounded.
3: Let's talk a little bit about the parallel from conducting to educating Tell us a little bit about your educational background and the experiences some of those that you had that um, that kind of parallel all of this and make you the professional that you are
4: so when when you become an educator I, I think it's about sharing so you have to have a love of something uh, fill in the blank what what your passion is but then it's about sharing and there's pedagogical, skills you learn about in the sharing part. And of course, they, they would need to be modified. There are certain things, there's certain trajectories you would use for students that you might abbreviate for using with adults and professionals. But But it is the same arc that I, as a musician, have to have the entire creation in my head finished. And then I, as a director have to communicate that vision to students professionals in a way that's appropriate for the age group and the experience of that group
3: do you come to the same sort of satisfaction in both educating and playing professionally
4: i I think professionally it really is about the moment and the performance immediately and and with with students it's about relationships and building those relationships and inspiring and and pushing to the limit so that at the end there's that gestalt that they do more they accomplish more as as a group than they could as individuals I'm talking about the students well yeah I'm talking about the, the orchestra too but it's 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 more critical there's more of a guiding process with the students and What's really wonderful is that when you take them higher than they thought they could achieve, that gives them that sense of accomplishment. And that builds a bond that lasts for years. You know, you keep in touch with students. You've had that opportunity to make a difference in their lives.
3: Tell us a little bit about the concert. What do you think we might be in store for that day?
4: Concerts that I've developed are not just concerts. They are educational events. And that speaks to my background as a teacher. So there will be selections that Florence Price composed for different uh, size groups. So we may have a small orchestra performing something. We will have a soloist, Makita Hampton, performing a soprano. And she will be performing with piano and also with the orchestra. We have a string quartet and a piano quintet performing. So there's this variety that we're trying to paint this picture of Florence Price over the trajectory of her life and her career. But in addition to that, I've written narration, which will follow the composer's life so that the audience, I wanna go deeper than program notes. So the audience will hear the narrator talking about Florence Price's life. And the narrative will, will be speaking in the first person. It will add that depth of understanding, hopefully, to the, to the audience experience.
3: And a little bit more about Florence Price and why we're honoring her during Black History Month.
4: Florence Price was the first African-American woman to have her symphony performed by a major orchestra. And she was a bright and talented young lady. She graduated first in her class at age 14. First, in her high school class, and then went on to the New England Conservatory to graduate with two degrees. Now, she had to achieve her place in history, in the musical history of the musical canon. She had to overcome prejudice of gender and race. In fact, I want to read a quote that she herself said that we will include in the production. But she said, I have two handicaps. I am a woman, and I have some Negro blood in my veins. So when she went on after she graduated and establishing her career as a teacher, she, she was born and raised in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, but there was a lot of racial unrest in 1927. So with her family, her husband and two children, they joined the great migration and went to Chicago and there her career thrived. She joined what is now called the Chicago Renaissance. And uh, she was very active in the National Association of Negro Musicians. And uh, in fact, we will be featuring some settings of poetry that she composed the accompaniment for. Poets such as Langston Hughes were featured. Um, So it was a thriving Chicago community that she was composing for. But then after her death in 1953, she was born in 1887. After her death, her music faded from popularity until 2009 when a house was being demolished and it had some of her papers and works inside. And the the new residents discovered this and, and had the presence of mind to alert important music professionals about this discovery. So that launched her into this current fame and being accepted as a great musical composer.
0: Thanks to Her Time 2020 director and conductor Rosaria Macera and our Carl Lengel for joining us on Arts Playlist. To learn more about the Florence Price Snapshots of My Soul concert, visit The Greens page at DelawarePublic.org. And we wrap up The Green next with Enlighten Me and a conversation about Super Bowl commercials, the millions they cost to run, and what to expect from this year's lineup. This is The Green on Delaware Public Media. Thanks for spending time with us on The Green this week. I'm Tom Byrne. About 70,000 fans will watch this year's Super Bowl, pitting the San Francisco 49ers against the Kansas City Chiefs in person at Agilent Stadium in Las Vegas. The rest of us, roughly 100 million people, will watch the CBS broadcast or stream it, and that means Super Bowl commercials. For the second straight year, the average cost of a 30-second ad spot during the big game is $7 million, a price tag that guarantees an opportunity to reach by far the largest U.S. television audience of the year. In this edition of Enlighten Me, Delaware Public Media's Kyle McKinnon is joined by Steve Marino, owner and chief creative officer of the Wilmington-based ad agency Aloysius Butler & Clark, to learn more about Super Bowl commercials and what to expect this year.
5: All right, Steve, the NFL is king in every sense of the word. The league's ratings routinely set records and and absolutely blow everything on television out of the water. I can't really uh, uh stress that enough that regardless if it's the Super Bowl or not, the NFL is king. No sport outside of really soccer viewership overseas remotely comes close to the NFL's numbers. And so I, I think that's just a good starting place. Can you give us kind of like a brief overview a bit for us? Why exactly the NFL is this ratings king, this titan of television and why it's it's really been that way for, for decades. Do people, do people just love their football, Steve, or is there, is there something more to it?
6: Uh, it's a little bit more to it. I, I mean, football, from an American standpoint, that's going to be our number one sport. But when it comes to marketing and advertising, we have become so bifurcated in terms of the way that we consume media that live sports are really the only way that advertisers and marketers can reach. A large group of people all at once. You know, it used to be that primetime TV, network TV shows, they would also give you those same numbers. That's gone. And so live sports are really the dominant way for marketers and advertisers to reach a whole bunch of people all at one time.
5: So when it comes to the Super Bowl, Steve, we know, uh, you know, the big game reaches, you know, more than 100 million people every year. And this year could potentially set some sort of records because a certain someone uh, will be at the game. Uh I'll get to her in a bit, but um not Taylor Swift. But uh but the stakes are obviously sky high for advertisers to get it right. So, what makes a Super Bowl commercial? What makes a good Super Bowl commercial a good Super Bowl commercial? What kind of criteria or objectives need to be met in your view?
6: Yeah, it's really about being able to cut through and it's about being able to hold a moment. I mean, the opportunity for Super Bowl advertisers is that there's all this spectacle and there's all this attention. But the problem is that there's all this spectacle and there's all these things going on. You have a large group of people in a room, people are eating food, they're talking. The the challenge is to how do you get everybody to stop what they're doing? And in 30 seconds... Love you, understand what you're talking about, and hold that moment and hold people's attention for, for 30 seconds. It's really, really hard to do. Uh, and so that's why you have advertisers. They bring out all the big guns. They bring out celebrities and puppies and talking puppies and babies and talking babies, riding puppies. They're trying to do every single thing that they possibly can just for you to be quiet for 30 seconds and watch what they have to say. It's very, very tough to do. It's very, and, it's, and it's really tough to do well. Uh, and that's why so many, you know, that's why there are so few spots where people go. Oh, I remember not only what that commercial was about, but who advertised it. That's that. That's that's. If you can do that, you can win the day.
5: Mm. Well, it's, it seems like anecdotally, it seems like humor always seems to to sell uh, when it comes to these commercials. The funny ones always, you know, are up there as far as the ones that do best. At least it seems that way anecdotally. But um, outside of like humor or not, do we have a an idea or sense at this point of what? of what sells with a Super Bowl audience.
6: Yeah, and and you're right. It, it's, a, it's a fun time, you know what I mean? And you kind of want to have your spot feel like it, it's represented above the mood. You know, and people are having a good time and you're watching those things and there's cheerleaders and there's, you know, fireworks and stuff like that. And so it naturally lends itself to humor. We're all having a good time, let's laugh. But at the same time, you've seen some really, really effective spots where it's been very sentimental or it's been very quiet or it's very been very... Uh, poignant. You know, if you'll recall the Budweiser Clydesdales, they make you feel great. But after 9-11, they walked and they bowed to the to the um to New York City. So you can have an effective spot that cuts through and is solemn. Uh, it's just harder to do. It's harder to, you know, feel like it, it feels like natural with the moment of what's happening. And then there's
5: also there's I'm sure there's an endless amount of you know audience statistics and these analytics to sift through when it comes to deciding on the commercial and its theme and its messaging, right? There's a lot that goes into creating a given commercial.
6: Yeah. And you know, what's funny is effective commercials back in the day, it used to be, you know, what owned the moment or what like became part of the zeitgeist where you suddenly had people saying like, what's up? You know, like they never said that before. Like you can own that. Nowadays, what is the most effective is a is a smart plan. You know what I mean? Where you go into this and you say, okay, we're going to, we're only going to advertise for 30 seconds, but how do we do a build up for that? How do we tease that? How do we do a promotion that leads itself into the game? How do we do a post-game follow-up where there's a winner of something that we talk about in the game? And so really uh, an effective Super Bowl, it's not even the Super Bowl spot anymore. What's an effective uh, Super Bowl marketing campaign around just those 30 seconds? That's actually now what's more successful.
5: Well, in terms of who those the, these ads reach, commercials and advertisements to store, you know, their audience specific, the Super Bowl can change that equation a little bit, right? So who, you know, who are these intended audiences? Does that obviously broaden for these brands and, you know, companies trying to sell whatever it is? Or yeah, what does that look like?
6: The Super Bowl, if you look at like sort of who's advertising, they they fall into a couple of different camps. One, you have like your massive, uh, they spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising and the Super Bowl is just something they do. Your Cokes, your Pepsi's, you know, your beer ads, your car manufacturers and things like that. That's a third of them. Another third of them is people that have never advertised in the Super Bowl before. And what they want to do is to announce to the American public, we're a big boy brand right that we are we're up there we're super bowl worthy uh, and so they either have something really really important to say and they want to use this opportunity to announce something new or they're just going out there and they're saying hey we're new we're here we're on the scene and this happens every single year and it falls in categories like crypto you know a couple years ago was like hey we're here crypto's a thing electric vehicles that was a year where it was dominated, right? And so you're going to see those things that happen where they're announcing this industry is ready for prime time, this brand is ready for prime time. You're going to see it this year. Tons and tons of online gambling. Tons and tons of online gambling. It's just a thing right. now.
5: Yeah. Well, so there's a lot that a good Super Bowl commercial can accomplish for both a brand and a company. But what, why do some of those ads and, and commercials, and why do the why do they end up missing the mark? Then what are, what are they? What are they not hitting on? Who are they not reaching?
6: So for me it's is what you say super bowl worthy right and so when you're watching these super bowl ads it's not like you're watching ordinary tv you're watching super bowl ads there is an expectation on the consumer that one it's got to be new this don't run something i've ever seen before give me something new give me something different introduce something announce something say something it's got to it's got to live up to the moment and the spot itself needs to live up to the moment. If you watch it and you go, that feels like something I would watch during daytime TV, it's not Super Bowl worthy. It, it's an ineffective use of the money. It's got to live up to the hype. It's got to live up to the moment. And it's got to own that moment. Or otherwise, it just falls flat. And there are all these commercials that just you know, feel ho-hum. And, and they really are a waste of money if you're not going to seize the opportunity.
5: Which is amazing that they end up being ho hum because of how many people actually have to sign off <laughs> on uh, these becoming a reality. But you know, again, so that's a good segue into this. Unfortunately, for all these you know big companies, these big brands, none of this is free. Uh, the price tag for several commercial spots is you know it's always been historically staggering. But you know, CBS this year is reportedly offering a thirty-second spot worth uh, about seven million. So why are these ads so expensive? Is it just because we're getting you know more than hundred million people? you know, eyeballs on the screen. And was that
6: why? Or it it is twofold. You know, it it is the fact that you're able to talk to literally all of America all at once. And so that is an opportunity that does not exist in the country at any other time. It's the only day. It's the only program where pretty much all of America still just tunes in at the same time. And so there's a price for that there's a price to make that announcement. So it's not just, it doesn't tie up to like regular TV viewership where you have a ratings number and well, that's the corollary. The Super Bowl costs more. And because you're talking to all those people, but you're also, what you're saying for your brand is that we're national worthy. And there's a cost for that as well to say that we're no longer a regional brand. We're no longer a mid-tier player. We're a Super Bowl marketing brand. You have to pay for that. You have to pay for that um, that privilege, basically. And that's why there's only a certain amount of spots. You got to get in early because they sell out. And then it becomes a bidding war to say, you know, what brands are wanting to step up to the plate and tell America that we've arrived?
5: One of my last questions here, Steve, is how, and I did mention this, I, 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 I'd, I'd come back to it. How does Taylor Swift and her Super Bowl presence actually factor into this? Because there is we actually here with on the green, we just did a, a segment on Swiftonomics and, you know, all of that. But like, you know, how, how do you think that actually factors into this, uh, you know,
6: 2024 Super Bowl? It, it does in that the NFL smartly is always trying to find ways to broaden their appeal. It's very easy for sports to say this is our audience it's a you know it's a male between the ages of this and that you know they you know they're parochial in terms of who they're following when there's an opportunity like Doing a game in Europe to appealing to Europe, doing a game, uh, broadcasting the game in Nickelodeon so we get younger people to watch football, Uh, simulcast in in Spanish so we can get the Hispanic market. When there's an opportunity like a Taylor Swift who falls out of the typical demographic to say this person, literally the most famous person in America, right uh, in the world right now, is going to be there. I don't have to be a fan of football to say, oh, well, I'll get to see that most famous person ever and what they're doing. So I don't think its viewership is going to suddenly double, but you will have a an interest from a demographic that they to- don't typically get interest from. And that's good for the NFL. It's really good for the NFL. And honestly, it's good for Taylor Swift because she's also reaching an audience that she doesn't necessarily reach you. Although we're not talking to us because you know I have a Taylor Swift tattoo. I'm Swiftie all day.
5: Uh, two Swifties <laughs> on a call. Um... Let's say then it's 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 Monday. That might be too soon of a day, actually. But you know, post mortem, how do we measure the effectiveness of you know we're a company looking at our ad during the Super Bowl? How do we measure how effective it was and how you know if we hit it on the head or not?
6: So a couple of easy ways. One, there is a you know there's a couple of different ad tracker meters where people literally rate what are my favorite ads, and the next day you'll be able to see these are the ones that are rated the highest. But the ones that really win are the ones that a week later some of the vernacular has been uh, been adopted it becomes like a phrase that you say you know around the water cooler if you're in the office again if you can own the zeitgeist you know be a what's up guy or if you can create a, a commercial that people like so much that it becomes a campaign you know it's like it becomes serialized of like oh we're going to do this again and again we're going to get you know our 30 month buy has now turned into a 6 month 12 month 18 month marketing opportunity for our brand yeah you just did a great job as a marketer
0: Thanks to the owner and chief creative officer of the Wilmington-based ad agency, Aloysius Butler & Clark, Steve Marino, for enlightening us this week. And that's a wrap on this edition of The Green. The stories and interviews you've heard are online right now at DelawarePublic.org. Just head to The Green's page on our website. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there by clicking Newsletters at the top of the page. And remember, The Green is also available via podcast at our website, as well as Apple Podcasts and the NPR and Delaware Public Media apps. We'd also like to hear from you. Give us your feedback and story ideas on our Facebook page or by emailing us at thegreen at DelawarePublic.org. Thanks to all those who helped make this week's show possible. Contributor Eileen Dalabrina. Delaware Public Media's Carl Engel, and our show producer, Kyle McKinnon. For all of them and the rest of the staff here at Delaware Public Media, I'm Tom Burnsing. Thanks for joining us this week. And we'll see you again next week on The Green, where Delawareans get tuned into a first date of mine.